Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, my name is Nader Manoha. Currently play for Real Salt Lake in the MLS, but previously I played in England for Man City, Sunderland and Queens Park Rangers. Starting at Manchester City, you came through there. It seemed Manchester City. It seemed that they had more success with producing players from the academy before the money came in. You look at the likes of Sean Mark Phillips, Daniel Sturridge, Mika Richards, Stephen Ireland, uh, and yourself. What was it like coming through at Manchester City at that point? Because I imagine it's a massive difference to what it what it is now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very different. But I think in some ways, like I'm open minded to the fact that I think in this day and age, comparatively, I believe they're making better players, even mm. if they don't necessarily make it to the first team. It's because the difference between now and then is that the level you needed to reach to be considered for the first team now is far greater because they don't have they don't have time to bed somebody in. You, it's almost like you have to be the finished product to get into the side. You know, and that's as a consequence of having a team where there's an expectation that you win every single game yeah. as opposed to one where you hope to which was what was the case when we were first, um, when the academy was like a bigger deal in terms of players coming through. Because mm-hmm. people had time, you know, we had, the club had ambitions, but it wasn't ambition. It wasn't like realistic to think that we were going to win something every single year or realistic to think that maybe you'd be in the top half every single year. So like I say, the energy was, it was very, it was very different. And the pathway was a lot more clear back then because I yeah. think there were probably 40 or 50 players maybe that got the opportunity to play in the first team. And, you know, we did, we did earn out, way into the team mm. but like now for example you could be the best striker in City's academy and score 100 goals a season but how do you play instead of Sergio Aguero you know yeah. that's that's ultimately the um, the difference in the club now and it's yeah, I think it's good in some ways because it allows people to find a find a way to play exceptionally well at a younger age but maybe it just means the opportunities to play for that team are less. But then on the other side of that coin, I think there are probably more players who will have a career coming through the academy now than maybe they were from back then. So obviously coming through at City at that point, you know, you played for them at what I what I think is was a peak time in the Premier League. You know, you had the likes of Chelsea, Manchester United, Arsenal. It just seemed a lot more competitive. Yeah. So what was it like coming through and competing with teams like that? Obviously you're coming up against opposition players like Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, mm-hmm. um, a bit of a whirlwind. Was, yeah, it was it's coming through in the Premier League in like the early 2000s. Like, as you say, those are iconic eras. Like, that was just at a time when United basically owned the Premier League. The time when Arsenal was starting to get some sort of stranglehold. Like, I think it was only two years, maybe one, after Arsenal had just gone through the season unbeaten. Mm. Yeah. And then Chelsea had just gotten the money. And then Liverpool obviously a force, but not quite the same sort of force than set that say that they are now. But as a player coming through, like I loved watching the Premier League. I w- loved watching all those leagues. And for me, it was so much fun at the beginning 
to be on the same field as people who I looked up to, people who were my idols. Mm. Like when I was first coming through, so when I was first in the academy, I was actually, um, I was playing as a striker and my idols were like Ian Wright. And as well as Ian Wright, you had Thierry Henry. And then a few years later, like I'm playing a different position, but I'm playing at Highbury. Yeah. And someone plays a ball down the channel and I'm running back to it at right back. And now I'm, I, I've got a one-on-one with Thierry Henry on the field. <laughs> Dennis Bergkamp playing up front with him with Robert Pires to the side, actually called down the side. God, yeah. And, you know, if you, if you love the game, then that time to come through was what truly was incredible mm-hmm. because there were so many special teams and players, even from the other side, say like looking at Man United's team, you had the Van Nistelrooy's, Ronaldo's, Rooney's, yeah. all that stuff. You know, it was, it was incredible. And not that you were ever overawed by it, but it was always exciting because you were going into every game knowing that like these are the best players in that time. I think that the league was probably far and away, probably the best in the world. Yeah. didn't just happen by chance you deserve to be there you've been selected to be there so it was yeah it was incredible and then for me I was lucky enough further down the line to like I played with Patrick Vieira I remember sitting as a fan for the years previous and he was just flicking balls over City's heads I used to watch Arsenal dismantle City every single time they played and then under Roberto Mancini here he is sitting next to me on the team bus going to a game I completely forgot you played for City yeah he wasn't a long he wasn't a long spell at all but like that to say that or to know that I've done that with him mm. and seen how good a guy and captain he is. You know, that's something I'll definitely look back on and, and be really happy about. How Just how different is it today, to t- today's football? Because obviously it's still competitive, but personally, I don't think there are as a quality of players. Obviously, you mentioned you know, briefly that just the, the, the absolute quality coming through at that time, like Vanessa Roy, um, we mentioned Vieira, Burkamp. I just don't feel like, like it's quite the same today, but it's... In- um, I, th- I think that opinion, I think I know where some people get it from, but also the game has changed in that time mm. as well as the players. So the players have had to adapt to that. Like For every time we talk about Thierry Henry's, Patrick Vieira's, um, Ruud van Nistelrooy's, David Beckham's, all that stuff, there's also another side to the league where there were people who were in the bottom half of the table. Mm-hmm or league or whatever, who probably wouldn't be able to play in today's game. Yeah. Because of the fact that the way that they view the game in terms of, like, there there are more 24-hour, seven-day-a-week professionals now than they were back then. Mm. So some people had the talent, but they never had the real mentality. Whereas now it's like, you may lose a couple of stars, but I think overall you get stronger teams, which is why even though... You know, Liverpool can get nearly 100 points. City can get nearly 100 points on a week-to-week basis. Overall, there's never really a game, especially in the last couple of years, where you can say it's a banker that a team is going to win. Mm. You know, City, they're, they're my, you know, they're my favourite team, and they've got on the day I think they're as good as anyone on the planet. But then they lose nine league games. You know mm. what I mean? And that's, yeah. ins- that's insane. Even Liverpool looked like they were going to be perfect for the season, then they lose two, three games or whatever. Like anything, Arsenal's, these are the great teams who used to dominate, but now they're losing more games. But they're not solely losing games against each other, they're losing games to just anyone around yeah. the league. So you maybe you lose a star, but as I say, you gain the um you gain the team because there are more people now who are plugged into knowing what is required to be successful. So going back to Manchester City and obviously you came through in sort of the the mid to late two thousands. Um it's a bit of a strange time for City, I think. 
um, bit of a transition, obviously, from a championship side or first division side at that point to a, to an established Premier League team. But you played with some big name players even then, you know, the likes of Vanelka, Robbie Fowler, Steve McManaman, Andy Cole, um, Alano, and Didi Haman as well. Mm-hmm. They were on the cusp of becoming a, a European team, but they never quite got there. How 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 come they never sort of bridge the gap? Um, so it it varies. So uh, when we had Nicholas Anelka, I think the highest we finished maybe eighth or ninth or something like that. But we yeah. had Nicholas, um, had Nicholas Anelka in a team which was slightly more, was a bit older. But then mm-hmm. you'd also have lots of young academy people coming through. So yeah. you had the you had the hope of being successful, but you didn't know the way to be successful. You know, we had um, we had a manager in Stuart Pearce who, you know, he he was important for that era. But looking back, he wouldn't have been a manager who would bring us that level of success. Mm-hmm. I think from after him, there were more managers who had felt success and knew what it took to be successful again. Yeah, and. Um, so, you know, year on year, I think we were getting better. The recruitment was getting better and it was becoming more long-term in terms of the people that were signing instead of people who maybe would come for six months, come for a year and then just go off and do something else. Because I think when you have that level of like player turnover, you can never be in a place where the moment you walk through the door, like I think this is a, this is a big statement about successful teams. When you walk through the door, you should know what the culture is because it comes from the top and everybody that's inside that room knows what the club is about. It's a constant revolving door of players. You don't, like, what is it? Is it this, this time? Is it that, that time? And in times of need, you know, there's nothing to fall back on as such. Mm. Um, So we we were trying. We had good players. We didn't have necessarily good players who would completely blend with the team and create, like, a spine. But then you then zoom forward a little bit to when the last few years when I was there and then after I left, you now had players like Vincent Company, David Silva, Sergio Aguero, Joe Hart, Michael Richards, who became the spine of not just the team, but the football club. Yeah. And you added pieces to that spine. And those other pieces stayed for a long period of time as well. You know, David Silva was at the club for basically 10 years. Vincent Company was at the club for 10 years. Mm-hmm. But before them, I couldn't tell you how many players were there for 10 years. But when you bring in a top quality type player and you make it a long-term plan to find success, and as I say, the culture can be set and the people coming in, they know what it's about. And the, then the belief that you can play in Europe or whatever goes from being a belief to being like almost an expectation and a goal which people will all buy into. And once you have that type of player in, the, in a building, like look at the success they've had over the last 10 years compared to the 10 before. Do you think that ethos only came in when the new uh, the new ownership came in in I think it was two thousand eight. Uh, it was a th- it did it possibly possibly like that was you can't deny that things changed from that moment. Yeah, but there were players in the building like Vincent Company was already there. Mm-hmm. I think David Silva might have already been been there. Maybe I'm not sure, but like that type of mentality and player was starting to arrive. Mm-hmm. Like under Mark Hughes, they were coming in. And Mark Hughes was always big to say, you're more than just a player on the field. You're a a professional sportsman. You're an athlete. You need to look after yourself. You need to do this. You need to do that. Mm -hmm. He's the first manager I'd had who thought of the game beyond just the field. So the club was starting to change in that moment. And then from when the new owners came in, they they obviously brought in players, but then they also brought in staff. They also changed the way the club is run from top to bottom. 
So to look at the club now compared to what it was, even though there's some familiar faces in there that maybe work in the um, in the offices or whatever, the mentality in the building is completely different. Like there's an expectation, mm. and they, they try they try to make the club the best club in the world, not just the best team on the field. And when you have that, then yeah, things credit to them for doing it because they could have been like other like I we'll talk about QPR in a bit, and you know they mm. spent money, but if you look at the club today, you wouldn't be able to tell that they spent money in that time Yeah, because certain things off the field haven't changed. But that's the foundation of success on the field. Whereas, say, for like a city, they've spent money on players, obviously, but they've got a new training ground. They've made changes to the stadium. They've brought stuff into the community. They've expanded the workforce. Like, everything is all built towards being in a position to be able to be successful for years and years and years instead of just solely focusing on stuff on the field. So I suppose that's probably a big turning point for the club. Yeah. So going back to sort of the the earlier, the earlier years, I think it was your first full season in the 04 or 05 season. So that was one of the times Manchester City started to flirt with um, Europe and the UEFA Cup at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stuart Pearce put David James up front against Middlesbrough yes. on the final day of the 04 or 05 season. Yeah. What was going through your head as a player at that point? What's going through my head as a player back then is different to what goes through my head now because that was my first full season and I was very confused. But looking back at it now, I would stick my neck out and say in terms of management, it's the worst managerial decision I think I've seen in my whole career because it wasn't the fact that he was just upfront playing. It was the fact that he needed to have a shirt printed out to be upfront playing. So when you think about it, this was a plan from before the game. It was premeditated. Exactly. Think about the fact that that game for us in that season was the biggest game we've had in years. If we win the game, we get into Europe. Plain and simple, that's it. Us versus Middlesbrough. They, if they don't lose, they get in. If we win, we're through. And then that was a thought that was in his mind going into the game. And I don't know anybody else who would have ever thought that would be a sensible thing to do, especially given the fact we had strikers. We left like John Macken on the bench. Yeah. You like him or you're not. John Macken has John Macken has a goal scoring record. Like <laughs> he has put the ball into the net before. Yeah. But now instead, I, like it was the weirdest feeling because at the end of, towards the end of the game, we had corners and all that stuff. And I was on the halfway line. They wouldn't let me go forward. Oh. But Nicky Weaver was in goal, but he was ahead of the halfway line and David James was in the box. And I was the first time and only time in my career where there'd been two of my goals landing ahead of me <laughs> in a game where we're trying to score a goal. Yeah, still, yeah, I, did, I didn't get it then. But looking back now, it's like, it's really annoying because that could have been something which changed the tone for the club in mm. years to come. I think I, I read an interview with um, John Macken about that and he said that I, that was the time he knew his city career was over. Without question, like you can't. How do you come back from that when you, they will literally put a goalkeeper on? No, not even put him on. They will give a goalkeeper a shirt to go and play up front over you as a player. It just it makes no sense. In all fairness, there was a time where he didn't like he was going to score. If I remember right, don't get sucked. In, don't get sucked in by that. <laughs> and even if he did, just let's be really fair and honest. Any outfielder could have been playing up front in that game where mm. those were pending in their box and you might have looked like you were going to score. <laughs> but the sheer fact that you thought the best person to try and get a goal would be the person who's never scored a goal, yeah. you know what I mean, for a 15-year career is 
is wild to say the least. Would you have been a bit more confident had it been a pitch Michael? Someone who has a track record of scoring goals. I would have been possibly, but he's a little bit before my time, so I'd say I'd been more confident if it was Casper Schmeichel. Yeah. Because having trained with him, he loves a goal. So he's someone I'd I'd maybe put him on before before a striker, but definitely not David Jones. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely a weird one. But yeah, it's one of those moments that, as you say, it could have changed C in the long term. Hundred percent. Like let's let's call it what it is. Like nothing. There's no sense of balance here or whatever. But the next year, Middlesbrough got to the final of the Europa League, mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean that we would have done that. But that's that's the year that they had. They had one of the best years in their history because they qualified based on what happened in that game. And then what did we do? We had a goalkeeper playing up front with, a sh- with an outfielder shirt on. Going back to your City career, you made 116 appearances in all competitions, roughly around seven seasons. Do you feel you could have made more? I think, as I say, looking back at your career, you seem really unlucky with the amount of injuries you suffered, especially at yeah. City. Yeah, for sure. When I was when I was younger, I I did have a lot of injuries. I'm not talking like massive six to nine month injuries and stuff like this, but I had so many like four to six weekers. I had maybe two or three three month ones with uh, my shoulder, hamstrings, and things like that. And they're kind of like momentum killers. So every year, you know, I'd always end up getting somewhere between maybe 15, 25 games or something, and who knows what it could have been if I managed to stay um, stay healthy for longer. Because when I was coming through, I was, you know, I was a big prospect at the time. Yeah. And you know, I wasn't playing every single game and stuff, but I was I was playing I was playing well. But it's one of those things in hindsight, you learn more about yourself and about your body the sort of the older you get. And some people aren't predisposed to getting any injuries and other people are. Mm. So as I've gotten older I've learned what I really need to get ready for a game and so on. And it was only three, four years ago. I played every minute of every game in the championship. Mm. And compare that to the guy who, for seven seasons, was only playing like 15 to 20 games. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's, but it is, it is, it is what it is. Like, I, I, I enjoyed that time and I was disappointed that I was injured as much as I was. But to still get the chance to play for my hometown club, like, I couldn't, I really couldn't have asked for any more. Really. Yeah. Like, it was still, it was still an honor. It was still a privilege. And I, and I left a big enough legacy there to the point where I could still go back. So, Hmm. I'm, I'm more than happy with that. Going to the sort of the, the later years of the, the UC career, obviously Sven Goran Eriksson came in. It was a big momentum shift. Obviously, I think it was um, Taxin Shinawatra came in with a lot of money, yep. uh, and then from there, the the the, the club was bought by um, Sheikh Mansour. Yeah. Again, how much of a me- how much of a shift in philosophy and expectation was it when the likes of Alano? Um, was co- were coming from the door, and then later, later on in uh, Robinho, for example. Yeah, when Sven came in, firstly, like that's the old England manager, mm. that's Sven Goran Eriksson. It's not just someone; it's not just a random Swedish manager. This is someone who has the pedigree of managing at international level. Yeah, somebody who's managed some really big clubs in the past, and the club weren't bringing him in so that we could finish in the bottom half of the table. They're bringing him because they had an idea of where they wanted the club to go. And under Shinawatra, you know, they had that idea, but they didn't necessarily not have the true understanding of the steps to get there and we were bringing in some good players and so on and that felt like the club was changing in that moment the, foot, the style of football was getting better um, I think positionally we were going up the league a bit but then it was all about when um, when Shimon Mansour came in because like the type of player you're bringing in now like 
Alana was incredible. I'll be honest with you. He was, he's an absolutely incredible player. But then you bring in Robinho to complement Ilano, and now you've got two players whose game, well, like with Ilano, his game goes up another level again yeah. because he's next to Robinho. You know, instead of being next to, say, like he's a good player, but like a Valerie Bojanov playing next to Robinho, especially with the way that they think about the game, like they will be more critical to the team mm. than, say, the two that came before. Um, so yeah, when you start bringing in some of those players, the, the level in training goes up. So it means the game, the preparation for games goes up, which means that when you go out and play on a Saturday, for some players, like the easiest easiest time you'll have in a week is when you play against the opposition. Because for <laughs> once, you're not having Robinho running at you for four five yeah. days in the week. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so yeah, that that's when things really start to ramp up. When things really start to change. And Robinho, San Robinho was a very big statement. You know, he maybe he didn't know the depth of what was going to happen, how yeah. he was going to be seen at the club or whatever. But him walking doors created a new tone, created a new standard. And although his time there wasn't as good as he would have hoped for, he still left the legacy because he was the first. And from there, players of that type of caliber would regularly come through the door. Mm-hmm. And some would come through the door and stay for a significant period of time and really make a difference. You know, we then there's only a couple of years after that, we're looking at City's team. And you've got like a Balotelli there with an Aguero. You've also had a Tevez, you know. And yeah, it was, it was incredible. The type of players that they started to bring in. And it wasn't just the players. Apart from maybe one or two, the club would really look into not just the players' ability on the field, but the stuff off the field. Yeah. So that when they came in, they were part of the culture straight away. Yeah. It was no surprise anything that they would do. And having been there for that time, when things start to change from like 2008 till 12, honestly, like that bunch of players there as people were as good as anywhere that have, that have been, that have been mm. since. And you could argue they probably didn't need to be because of the fact they were so successful and had so many big names in. But that group was probably the most humble group, even though it was also the most talented group that I've ever played with. It's definitely a far cry from having to bring on David James as a <laughs> substitute striker. See, the thing is, you said having to. You said having to. You <laughs> had to do that. Just choosing to. That's the difference. Absolutely. Uh, so moving on to QPR, you know, at this point, you are an established Premier League player, um, but you joined QPR, who were in a relegation battle under Mark Hughes. So at that point, why the move to QPR? You know, were, were there other options at that point? Um, so I moved to QPR in January of 2012. And mm. for the first uh, half of the season, I hadn't been playing. Mancini basically told me that he didn't want me around. And he had me training with like the under 16s, under 18, stuff like that, which was like was incredibly disappointing considering how long I'd like I'd been at the club since I was 10. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm being pushed to that side. I'd played under every manager before him. But all of a sudden, I'm not good enough now, even though well, the team around me hadn't changed. Well, yeah, saying that, I've, I kind of read an interview with Stephen Ireland, and he almost had the same treatment under Mancini. Yeah. It, but to, I thought, to Stevie, Stevie didn't, I think Stevie had left by that point. Mancini mm. just didn't like certain people. Like, this is a guy who, for example, initially was said to Julian Lescott that, like, I think he said his calves are too small. He said, okay, Santa Cruz's quads are too small. You know, so he had these type of things in his head and it was very different okay. for us to try and understand and accept. Yeah. So never, like you said, I was too slow, but I was like the quickest player in the team. It was, it was weird. Mm. It was really, really weird things which you couldn't get your head around. But because things were changing so much, you, you spent all your time trying to figure it out. And the way that you would approach him, say, I'm going to prove him wrong, I'm going to prove him wrong. Like it made no difference because once he made his mind up, he made his mind up. Yeah. So myself, I remember at the start of that season, it was me, Adebayo, Craig Bellamy, Wayne Bridge, 
they like we had to stay behind in Manchester while the rest went over to America for their tour. And we were playing like with under sixteens and things like that. And I just thought this is this is wild. So I thought I needed to leave in that first window, but nothing came about to the point where on the last day of the window, I, I took all my stuff and said bye to everyone. And then <laughs> watched, there's no, no deal happened on deadline day. <laughs> so then I had to walk back in the next day, carry my bag saying, oh, hi everyone, I'm back. And then <laughs> just so turned out as well. That, yeah. that must've been a Monday or something. And then there was the club had its very first Champions League game on a Wednesday. And somehow I was in that squad, even though I hadn't trained with the team um, for the <laughs> previous three months. Turned out I was in that squad for the um, homegrown thing. Or oh, so okay. It was the, so it's part of the yeah. But, you know, when stuff like that's going on, you know there's not a place for you there anymore. Yeah. But, yeah, I proceeded to play in maybe three or four cup games. And then I played in one league game. And then they said they had a bit accepted from... They said they accepted a bit from QPR. Yeah. I need to go and speak to them. And I knew their position in the league. And I'd never played in the championship before. I never really had any desire to. Mm-hmm. But speaking to Mark Hughes and the fact that they said, the club said that this is the only, they've accepted the offer. I have to go down there. Yeah. And I'm down there. And, you know, even if I have my reservations, the fact is there's nothing for me back in Manchester. You know, I'm not playing. And in this career, there's a, you never know when it's going to end. So to be able to think to yourself, you could just waste a full year just through disappointment and wait yeah. for something that might never come. You know, you, you just can't do it. Having played under Mark Hughes, at Manchester City, was Mark Hughes one of the big factors in joining QPR? No, without question, yeah, without question. Like if he if he wasn't there, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have gone. But he's someone who liked me and he's someone who I trusted. And yeah, I think he was probably the turn, responsible for the turning point in my career when he started mentioning stuff about being a twenty four seven professional, learning mm. about the importance of hydration, the real importance of diet, the real importance of this, that, and the other. Because I was playing. But I was more so just like a kid playing the game and just enjoying myself. Yeah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't fun, it wasn't anything like that. It wasn't like wild. But he brings in and really explains the importance of every element in terms of finding success. So I trusted him because he showed me and a lot of other players that type of mentality. So mm. when he was there, it's like, yeah, it's a no, it wasn't it was a no-brainer. But if he wasn't there, I don't think I would have gone. If you could see us recording, you would notice that Justin and I generally wear a different football shirt almost every week. There's nothing that fuels nostalgia more than an old football shirt. And guess where you can get them? Classicfootballshirts.co.uk Absolutely. I spent plenty of money there and got myself some cracking purchases. Just recently, I started sporting an AZ Outmore training shirt and a Hoffenheim training jumper. So pretty different. Exactly that. And it's not just football shirts. You can get training wear, footballs, boots and match-worn stuff from former pros. There genuinely is something for everyone, no matter which side you support. So find what you're looking for at classicfootballshirts.co.uk or visit them in-store in either London or Manchester. That season you signed for QPR, uh, 11-12 season, uh, weird way how it works out but you're going into the final game needing needing um, other games to go in your favour to stay up as a QPR player uh, and City obviously need the win to pit United to the title so what's what's going through ahead here having left City in January to needing to beat City to Stay up, although it didn't work out. The stress that week, oh, in fact, the stress the moment I saw that when I, as soon as I went to QPR, I saw when the City game was, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> away to City, last game of the season. 
this is this could be a disaster, but weeks were passing and things were okay. And you know, we, we actually went into that game not needing to win because we won the week before against Stoke. Yeah. Dribble Cisse scored a winner in the last minute, and that was actually the win that kept us up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going over there, and I've been at QPR three months, basically four months. I didn't really know the players, didn't really know the staff, didn't really know the club. And I'm playing against a team where the moment I step foot in the stadium, I know every staff member in there because I've been going there for <laughs> yeah. years and years. And I don't just know them, like I'm friends with them. I'm friends with people in the team because I've been playing for the club for eight years. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just the first team. Friends with people who are working concessions because I've been going to games since the stadium opened in 2003. Like yeah. that to me was home. And now I'd arrived and it wasn't supposed to be home anymore. And I needed a result. And yeah, I say I, obviously we needed a result, but I was so stressed because also I was a City fan and, you know, you want them to do well and win a title. Mm-hmm. But this is me, like me in my career as a professional, you always do the best for your team. Yeah. And I thought, what happens if we win here and they lose the title? Like, I might, is Manchester not going to be my home anymore? Well, be welcome, you know what I mean? All yeah. these like irrational things going on in my mind. But thankfully, even I thought I, I thought I'd predicted every single scenario that could happen. But the one which it turned out to be was the one which I never thought about. But it's the one which was the best for me personally because I got to see my team uh, stay up, and it guaranteed me and my players another year in the Premier League. I was also seeing some of my closest friends in football win a title at home in the stadium which I used to call home which is full of people who I know because these are the people in the streets of Manchester yeah and like it was a it, for me personally it was the perfect scenario did you celebrate at any point no I, I didn't did. celebrate I didn't celebrate City winning the league I celebrated us staying up yeah but I only did so after they scored the third goal because I looked at our bench and they were celebrating and I <laughs> And they were celebrating because just before that, I thought we were down. Yeah. But in that moment then, I think that's like, before that point, I never understood why people celebrate finishing 17. But then when you get yourself down there and you know every single week is a struggle and a toil, yeah. and you understand how much a club can change if you go down, whether it's a case of player salaries or people losing their jobs or just things going forward, mm. you know, you've earned the right to be in that division again. And that sense of relief is definitely something which, is, which I totally understand why people celebrate now. And I get it. And I'm very happy we managed to do that. It was a, it was a bit of a strange game. QPR took the lead and then it sort of, it got to around, I don't know, the, the 80th minute when it all started yeah. to sort of kick up again. Yeah. Um, and City, obviously was terrible. City were terrible, honestly. Yeah. Before, before they scored their second, there was like a 23rd minute spell where they were terrible. But that like that won't be in the history books because you would just see the scoreline. Yeah, uh, Martin Tyler shouting Aguero. But yeah, we uh, it, was, it was a it was crazy. Like Mancini had lost the plot on the side, like really? completely lost the plot. He was <laughs> swearing at his players after we went two and up, like cursing them out, like rattled he was. But then at the end, you know, he's the hero that brought the first title to uh, to Manchester to Man City at QPR the following season. Unfortunately, ended in relegation. But it seemed, uh, you know, who's who of talent that came through the door? You know, Julio Cesar was there, Basingua, Jason Park, Tal Ben Haim. Why didn't it click for for that side? Because it ju- it seemed like someone had a big budget on football manager and just went, yeah, I'm buying him, I'm buying him, I'm buying him. Yeah. Um, so for me, 
I think I don't think it clicked because QPR itself as a club is it's like overall it's a, it's a good club, but it's a small mm. club. And no matter how well you're doing or you're not doing, it's this for example, the stadium which holds seventeen, eighteen thousand people. So if you if you start to have ambitions that you're this massive club and you're gonna get sell out whatever and be wherever, like that's not the club. And the club for what it was for the years previous was based around a certain type of player. Yeah. You know, the club was defined by say Clint Hill or Sean Darius, Jamie Mackey's and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. those are good guys and good players. And obviously they had a Delta Rats, but he was the exception to the rule. But they had all those players and those most of those players were still there that second year we were in the Premier League. But now you're bringing in people who've won Champions Leagues. And the difference between in mentality between someone who's won a Champions League and someone who's spent most of their career in the championship can be so vast. But now you're on the field trying to achieve something together. And, and Mark Hughes would try his best to say, this is how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do that. And now all that stuff works when the team's winning. But when the team's losing, all of a sudden you have 10 different personalities and ideas on a field in terms of what needs to change. Yeah. And, you know, whereas for other people, they're fortunate whereby if you have, if everyone has the same sort of mentality, you can get through bad times by all doing the same thing. Mm. But say, for example, if we're playing away at Arsenal, someone that's won the Champions League will be thinking, let's get the ball down and play nice football. But somebody that's come from the Championship say, well, let's just drop off. Yeah. And don't, don't try and keep the ball for too much. And like, how do you then get those two people to find a cohesive strategy together? Because whichever one you choose to do, there'll be someone who doesn't want to do it. Yeah. And that's not a fault of them. It's just the way that they're conditioned based on, say, the years that came before. And I think we, were, we, we really struggled with that at certain times, especially when we went on a run where we literally weren't winning any games. And it just became one of those things, as I say, where there was no real overall chemi- chemistry. There was no true identity to the club. And when the proverbial hit the fan. As I say, it wasn't like a United front in trying to deal with it. The season ending relegation, just how much of a mindset change is it from losing games to being expected to to, to go up? Um, yeah, it was completely different. And I think uh, Harry Redknapp, one thing which he tried to do that first pre-season, he said he's going to make it as hard as possible so that the only people that remained were the ones who were willing to be there for the yeah. task ahead. And he did do that. It was a, t- it was a tough pre-season. Uh, but we were so lucky to have the players that we had in that team. Like we had Nico Cranchars, we had Ravel Morrison's, people like that. These are people who aren't, in my opinion, they're not championship players. Mm-hmm. But we managed to have them playing in the championship. For, did I say Ravel? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah Ravel Morrison. Managed to have yeah. Them, managed to have them playing in the championship in that moment. Like mm-hmm. on paper, that team could have played in the Premier League and probably done all right. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it was good to have those people in there now, but then also it was a different mentality because instead of having someone who's just solely won the Champions League or whatever, you have people who are built in a particular way. So when stuff mm-hmm. was going wrong, you still had like a, a bit of, you had steel in there yeah. across all positions and a tough mentality because everyone knows the championship is tough. Mm-hmm. Like you're playing 46 games, like the games are just thick and fast. And they're not necessarily games where you'll just have 500 passes a game. Like you go out and you'll try and play. But if it's not a game of playing, it's just a game of winning. You, you know, you have to just find a way to do that, whether that's like continually heading the ball away or whatever. So, um, yeah, it was, we had the right group of players gather for that season. You yeah. know, credit to the club for the recruiting that they did. And it just meant that if we played well, 
ad fans used to beat anybody. But if we played badly, there's still enough in there to be able to get a result, which is which is massive in the championship. Mm. Finishing fourth and with an incredibly experienced and gifted squad, especially at championship level, as you say. Do you think the team could have finished higher? You know, was there an air of underachievement that season or was the remit just to get promotion, happy to do it, whatever way? We were, we were very happy to get promotion, but there is definitely an air of underachievement because for the players that we had, I, I believe we should have won the league. That's mm. my genuine belief. I think it was, it was Leicester. Yeah. Uh, and uh, who else went up? Do you remember? Burnley. Leicester and Burnley that went up. Yeah. And on paper, I think we had the better team. I think at times we didn't necessarily play the better football. I think we... It could be a bit of a controversial take, but I think once Steve McLaren was our assistant coach and when he was there, I think we were unbeaten for X amount of games, weren't really mm-hmm. conceded, like we were doing really well. And he left and went to Derby and he helped them get to the final. And I think the players really enjoyed working with him because yeah. we had a certain style of play. And we dominate games. Like there's some games where we'd have six hundred passes. And it would be nice football, all this stuff. And he was had a very clear vision of what he wanted from us. And the, and the players, you know, they bought, bought into it. But then from when he left, it became more of a case of just get not just getting through because we were still a very good team or whatever. Yeah. But we didn't have, we weren't controlling the games in the way that we were when he was he was there. So I think we did underachieve because the way that we started, like I would have fancied us to win the league. To be honest with you. So going on to that playoff final. <laughs> I'm a Derby County fan. Sorry about that. <laughs> no need to apologise. We would have won had it not been for Gary O'Neill shithousing that red card. Well, listen, you call it that, you call it that, but it's actually the best tactical decision he's probably ever made in his career. Yeah, I can't, I can't disagree. Yeah, yeah I think that shifted the game. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it totally did because, like, we didn't overall we didn't play well that game. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of what I was alluding to in the fact that we can still find a way to win. Yeah, you know, people are committed, and that's essentially what the championship is. Like, it's not every year you'll find a team like, say, Wolves from a few years ago. We've got wingers who were playing in Benfica and Portos and all that. Yeah, but every year you'll find a team who, like, they're just like Cardiff or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, no one, no one outside of Cardiff would be thinking to themselves, you know, I, I really love the way that Cardiff play. Yeah, so I can guarantee you, as a player, they're not the team that you want to play week in week out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's something to being tough to play against in that division. And I think we ended up being that. And although like Derby, you guys had the best play, best possession, Will Hughes is doing well, Chris Martin up front, blah, blah, blah. Just as a one-off game and on the day, like we just, we just found a way, which is essentially what we were doing for the months before. As someone who was involved in that game, and clearly I, I didn't get to experience the euphoria, how how good was it? The way it was won, 89th minute, incredible. on the back foot for the most of the game. Just just yeah. how good was it? It was it was absolutely incredible because as well for me, as the as Bobby scored, I was on the halfway line, and my view, even from my peripheral, was all QPR fans. Mm. So the Derby County fans were to behind me and to the right and left, and I just saw everyone in my vision jump up and start celebrating <laughs> like this. I couldn't, like, I was literally in the middle of the field and I saw it, it was perfect. And like Bobby's, Bobby's my guy, Junior Hoyle who stole the ball, he's yeah. like my guy. Like it, it was incredible. And to know that, say for, like this is the thing. So I gave the ball away for when Gary O'Neill actually got the red card. So I, I thought I'd lost the game for the team. Yeah. So again, he, he bailed me out and Bobby bailed him out. And as I say, to, to win, 
people like Julian Lescott spoke to me before the game and he said, I said, it's a great day, but only if you win. Yeah. So to have that in my <laughs> mind and to go out and to see a score that late and knowing that like whatever, we, whatever dive we're going to do next, was going to be something outside of the character because you guys play nice football and all this, but now you just needed to just boom it into the box. Mm -hmm. But that's not your style. Yeah. So it played into our strengths. Like us with the goal and with time is something which I was comfortable with. So yeah, that feeling there was absolutely incredible. And it's exactly as Joey said, uh, it was a truly, truly incredible feeling. So just to make me feel a bit better and just bring you down a peg, obviously the next season ended yeah. in relegation. Correct. Yeah. Um, again, it just, I think the season just went out with a bit of a whimper, you know, the likes of Rhea Ferdinand came in, Leroy Fur, who had a really good World Cup with Holland, who got mm -hmm. to the semi-final, Sandro, um, yep. you know, they all came in, but it just didn't work out. Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's, um, you know, <laughs> it's tough. In, when, as you enter the Premier League, everybody has a belief that they can do well, and mm. they will do well. But every single year, three teams will go down. Like, mm -hmm. no questions about it. No matter how much desire or want or tactical nails you have, three teams will always go down. And we, unfortunately, were that team where we couldn't really click or get a good run of results or stuff like this. You know, like, when you break it down, it's, it's literally three, maybe four points a month is all you need to stay up. Mm -hmm. But in the Premier League, wins are hard to come by, especially back-to-back -back ones. And here's, um, here's a story for you. So I think it was Christmas time and we were second or third bottom and Leicester were bottom. Yeah. And I said, Leicester, they're done. We don't even need to worry about them anymore. They're finished. We're going to try and go up and catch whoever. Leicester finished that season in like 14 from the year after they go and win the league. <laughs> the next year we're in the championship sitting distinctly in mid-table. And that just goes to show like, it's just about finding form and just going yeah. on a nice run because that's Leicester played well for four months in that season. Yeah. And the rest of it, they were nothing. But unfortunately for us, we didn't have a spell like that where ultimately we could, um, we could do well enough for a prolonged period or score enough goals to really give ourselves a chance of contending. Yeah, throughout the sort of the early sort of 2010s, QPR were a bit of a yo-yo side. Do you think that, serious investment set them back a few years because again you look at the the years that came it was it was cost cutting bringing through academy players you know really having to strip yeah. it back do you think it set them back um in hindsight maybe it did mm. but then in the same breath the the rewards for staying in the premier league are so vast that people are prepared to take a chance on it but unfortunately it just goes to show that sometimes solely investing in, in players isn't necessarily something which fits a long-term hope for a club. Yeah. You, know, you could get someone in who might help you stay up this year, but then if they leave or if whatever, then how much have you paid to just have that moment to then just, mm -hmm. all it does is delay what could essentially be the inevitable. You know, I think the next time that QPR play in the Premier League, they'll probably have like a real core group of players and a strong group of players who a team is based around. Mm. as opposed to them thinking, well, we're going to go up, so now let's bring in five or six really big-name players, see what we can do, because you can't build a team around, say, bringing in five, six big names who don't know what it is to play for the football club. Yeah, I think that's that's something about the place. Like As I say, it's 17,000, 18,000-seat stadium. The, the, the fans expect to see a certain thing, and it's not necessarily what someone who you invest heavily in is expecting because they're coming from a place where maybe they expect to see something completely different. Yeah. So you won't have the same level of support. You won't be like the same way. It's little things like that. You know, they affect players. 
and fans, you know. Like, fan, this is Jamie Mackey, this friend of mine, is an ex-teammate, and QPR fans loved him. Mm. But would you say he's the type of player who is the purest and, like, the most pleasing on the eye? Probably not. But that's what they want, you know? And you can bring them player X who's just won the Champions League or someone who's playing the Europa League today for Seville. And they might struggle, which seems wild. But at the core, the club is one thing. And unfortunately, unless you bring in players who know and understand what that one thing is, yeah. then it never, it's proven to never really work. So yeah, the investment, maybe it did set them back, but hopefully the, they're building from the ground up now instead of just trying to throw things on top and make it work. Coming to the end of your QPR career, um, you know, you'd spent six, seven seasons there. Was it the right time to leave you or did you want to stay there? Um, I think for the position I was at, at the, the place I was at in my career, like going somewhere new would have been the right time for age, the age of my kids and stuff like that. Mm. But I wasn't opposed to staying. I just knew that the window of opportunity in terms of trying something different was, gonna, was starting then. Maybe that was going to be the sweet spot. But then the club didn't really show any significant interest in keeping me in keeping mm. me there. So, you know, in the end, it was an easy decision. But I think I was happy because, uh, so, story for you, when Bobby Zamora, this could lead to me, but when Bobby Zamora first went to QPR, yeah. he was getting quite a bit of stick. But what was going on was that he was playing while he was injured. Like, he had mm. a significant injury. And the fans didn't know that because as a player, you don't go around making quotation marks, making excuses or whatever. But he yeah. was... He was being the brave guy who was going out and doing everything he could for the team because they needed him. But he was being judged as if he was fully fit, but he never was. And yeah. while he was getting booed, I remember him saying to me, I'm not going to leave this place until they see me as a hero. <laughs> and he, he said that. And at the time, like, he was, like the fans hated him. Yeah. They hated him. But based on that moment against your team at Derby, yeah. Bobby Zamora left as a hero. And for me, I didn't have that mentality of, say, leaving as a hero as such, but I wasn't as well-beloved as a... At the, uh, throughout, the, throughout the time there as I was at the end because at the end I was the captain at the end I just won like players player of the year so I, I was able to step away and know that I couldn't have done any more so I was very much at ease with that time and I guess it was a good time to go in the end So obviously that led to a move to the MLS mm-hmm. you know was that always on the cards because I know some footballers really want to sample the MLS or somewhere else uh, yeah. out of the UK yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really on the cards to necessarily come to the MLS, but after uh, maybe a month or two of seeing the interest that existed in the UK, my whole plan was to try and play outside of the shores. You know what I mean? I was trying mm-hmm. to play abroad. The initial plan was to try and play somewhere in Europe. And so as a consequence, I was looking into that. And you know, whilst all that was going on, I was, I was turning down certain opportunities in England because I did just want to have a different experience. Mm-hmm. Because I was always the guy where I watch all football from every corner of the globe. And as a consequence, my knowledge of the game is, I feel like it's more rounded because I could tell you about a player who's playing in the second division in France the same I could tell you about a player who's playing in, in the championship in England. Yeah. And I appreciate all those different types of football. And I thought, if I can, you know, this, is, this might be the one job where you'll be able to legitimately go somewhere, maybe learn a new language, learn a new culture, learn a new style of football. And, you know, and you still have those home comforts of knowing that you can go back to the UK or whatever. So, yeah, I was, I was very keen to go and sample something elsewhere. But the news mm-hmm. into Europe weren't really coming. And, you know, some of that's because around that sort of time, there was a big drive whereby if you were to be a British player going abroad, if you, unless you're like 18 to 21, yeah. 
the interest level isn't necessarily what it was and here mm. I was like maybe 30 or whatever so it wasn't wasn't going to be but then the MLS option was something which was floated to me and I thought well that's interesting and then it just so happened the club which I signed for here they offered me um, good contracts in terms of length and it was a whole new experience like mm. and just as I was signing I had offers to go and play um, in other teams in, in the UK for more money but I just wanted the experience to be honest. And since I've been here, I'm very happy that I made that decision because yeah. I love my family, my family has as well. And it's been, it's been a great experience. So one of the, the moments that stick out is the, the battle against Slatan Ibrahimovic. I think it was last season mm-hmm. um, while you were playing for Real Salt League. Yeah. You rejected his apology after some really weird antics from him. You know, what happened in that situation? I think looking back at the pictures, you looked as professional as you could be while a man with the ponytail was screaming down you. Screaming down your neck. Well, here's the here's the thing for you, which not many people know, is that as he was screaming down my neck, I didn't actually know he was doing it until I saw the video and clips afterwards. Because <laughs> if I did know, maybe my response would have been different. Yeah, like that's that's a very fortunate thing within the situation. But the way that he was and the way that he is, he's um for the for the for his goal record and stuff, it speaks for itself. But for his behaviour, is very divisive mm-hmm. because people like love it or people hate it. And, and me as as who I am. The way that he is isn't what I stand for. And it's not what a lot of my other people around me stand for as well. Like, it's great that you're a great player, but you also you almost felt like he's very, very arrogant. But that's what gets him going. Yeah. And I always have to say from the get-go, with any negative I say about him, his record as a player is exemplary. And it's a, maybe once in a generational type mm. record. But like me coming from playing in the UK... In this in the league in the MLS, the stars get special treatment not just from say fans in the league, but sometimes from the people they play against yeah. because they see them as just being big stars. Whereas the difference in mentality is when you were in the UK, say Man City could go and play a game in the cup against Burton, and I could guarantee you eleven players for Burton could kick the crap out of the City players. Mm-hmm. But over here, they, there's like a bit of reluctance and fear to do that, even though you're on the same field as them. So you deserve to be there just as much as they do. Yeah. And I think that's something which I've tried to change in my team over the past couple of years. You know, it doesn't matter who you're playing against. You're both playing in the same game. So you step up and these players, these, these great players, if you, make the, if you take a step back from them, they'll dominate and they'll score goals and do whatever. Mm-hmm. But like if someone steps to you, you step back because you, de- you deserve to be there and you're a man. You breathe the same air, same air you're kicking the same ball. To stand up for yourself, but for too long, people haven't done that. So that's essentially what I was doing in that moment because I'm from, as I say, I'm in the UK where I don't care who, you could have scored a thousand goals in like 500 games, but I, I couldn't care less because when we go and play, it's me against you. Yeah. And like that's the energy that I gave him that day. And to be fair, I think he respected it because the next time we played against each other, like he was complimenting me, you know what I mean? Which blew my mind because I was ready to go to war again. Yeah. The next thing I was confused, I was like, hey. <laughs> saying I'm doing well here but it, it is what it is I guess presence moving on to your podcast Kickback with Adam it's quite a unique podcast yeah, I think I look back at the first episode listen to you literally thought of the name of the yeah. podcast in the first first episode with um, Matt Gash is it yeah that's right Yeah, that's right. who's the PR, PR director at Rail Salt Lake uh, you know it's a really nice blend of football music you know if you want a break from pure football it's, it's it's a good bend and obviously a good alumni of guests who, who you really get to know so what what ignited your drive to start a podcast um so before i came to the us i was doing certain bits of media work for the bbc i'd done a few bits of bt sport and so on 
And I really enjoyed having a microphone in my face and being able to just talk about something that's not necessarily scripted. Yeah. You know, to, to give an opinion or to tell a story. Like when I was re- receiving certain bits of media training from the BBC, they, they say that you engage more with the audience when you can tell a story. Because some of those stories in football and just in life, like I don't talk about them at work because they're just football stories and mm-hmm. they're surrounded by footballers. But you forget sometimes that the audience, none of them have played football. So even if I talk about what I did today at training, it would be boring if I said it to a group of footballers, but to a yeah. bunch of fans. Like, it's a great story. Yeah. So that got me interested in the whole concept of just storytelling in general. Um, so I had appeared on a couple of podcasts for, uh, say, other team members and stuff in uh, here in Utah. And then the producer said, do you fancy doing your own thing? And I was like, well, it's not something that I've thought about before, but what a great way for me to be able to highlight guests who you know I've, I've, I've had some big names on there but everybody's got a story to tell yeah and some of those stories if people listen like some of the best episodes are the ones where people from people who maybe you have never heard from before but then the other side as well is that people who you do know about now because they're talking to me as a player they talk differently to how they talk about me if i was a member of the media so you get more honesty and you get the type of things which you wouldn't hear because unfortunately the way that most media works is that when a game's finished they talk and they ask well what about what happened in the game and what's going to happen in the next game mm-hmm. and it's just like here's the cliche playbook they pull out their playbook we pull out ours yeah. and we say nothing for five ten minutes at a time but now people can really talk about what makes them who they are and like i i'm someone where i ask when i ask somebody questions because i want to know the answer yeah so all the questions asked of the people who are on the show, it's because I, I really want to know. It's the type of conversation I would have with someone if I wasn't recording, but I got the chance to spend time with them and I could just talk to them about their lives and their careers. And some of those stories are really, really interesting. And I feel like overall the guests have presented themselves in a way which most people haven't known mm. before. But anyone that listening, that's listening can now really understand with a bit more depth like what makes someone who they are as opposed to a save they make or a shot they take. Now you yeah. know why they are who they are, yeah. Thank you very much for your time. No, no, no I appreciate I appreciate you reaching out and uh, big shouts to all your listeners, yeah.